For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Memorial Day, a very special day for all of us and for our country as we remember and honor our fallen American heroes. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley. Also by email at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Well, on this Memorial Day, which in my mind is the most somber and important and special day of our secular calendar in this country, at least, we're going to do a very special show for you in keeping with the remembrance and honor that we bestow upon our fallen heroes today. And actually, we should keep in mind our fallen heroes, not just today, but every day. And also, in addition to our fallen heroes, all of our military veterans, really, we should have front of mind every day because we would not be in this country, we would not enjoy our freedoms for so many years uh, since the founding without men and women who are willing to put on the uniform of this country and sacrifice so much, including oftentimes their very lives to support what this country stands for, our constitution and our freedoms. Well, today on this Memorial Day, I do wanna honor a very special group of military veterans. On this day, of course, as I said, we remember and pay tribute to those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our country and our precious freedoms. 
But there's another group of men who fought in a war that became increasingly unpopular at home. So that when those soldiers who served in that war came home, they were often ignored, spat upon, shunned, and otherwise disrespected. It was a complete outrage and a very, very shameful part of our history. But there was another group which was deeply disrespected in another way. Our prisoners of war and those missing in action, our POWs and MIAs from the war in Vietnam. They were disrespected by inaction by their own government that sent them into the jungles of Vietnam. They were disrespected by action on the part of those in power for a very long time and by simply being forgotten. Well, they certainly weren't forgotten by their loved ones who wanted them returned home safe and secure. And many of them did whatever they could to bring attention to their plight and get them home. One such group of women, military wives, banded together to do just that. The brand new book, Unwavering, The Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man is Left Behind, tells their incredible, powerful story. I'm delighted to welcome the authors of this book, Taylor Baldwin-Killand and Judy Silverstein-Gray. Both are accomplished authors. Taylor is a former naval officer, and Judy is a retired Coast Guard chief petty officer. So they have both served this great country with great distinction, and they join us now. Ladies, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here, and thank you both for your service to America. Thank well, you. Thank you. Well, I am thrilled to have you here, um, particularly on this Memorial Day with this very moving story. And I want to tell everybody, I got an advanced copy of this book, and it's just incredible because it reads like a novel. It's, it's just a page turner. It's beautifully written. You, you both have an incredible gift uh, for writing. And it's certainly gripping in terms of the story, the narrative that you drive. So anybody who's picking up this book, and you know summer is coming, this is going to make it a great beach read because it is, it, it's not pure escapism the way you would think, but it's such an important story and it's told in such an engaging manner. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Well, ladies, before we get into the details of this story, why did you decide that you wanted to tell it? And Taylor, maybe I'll start with you. Well, I will tell you that one of the former POWs, Captain Dick Stratton, who's very notorious, uh, contacted me about eight years ago. And he said, Taylor, there has been so much written about us and our epic battle against the North Vietnamese while in captivity. But there's been much less written about our wives and the epic home front battle they waged. And I think there should be a book about them. And I said, you know, Captain Stratton, I think you're right. And so I embarked on that research and writing journey eight years ago. And then I recruited Judy to co-author the book with me. And Judy, why, what was it about this pitch coming from Taylor that made you want to take on this story? 
Well, um, as you probably know, Taylor has a lot of experience writing about the POWs and their story is epic, as she said. But the little known story of the trailblazing women who um, you know, labored against expectations both in society and in the military and against all odds became the voice of the leave no man behind policy really was compelling. I mean, these were unlikely and gutsy innovators. They basically changed the course of policy and the way we fight our wars and also impacted the way we treat military families. So it was, um, you know, delight, delight. I was delighted to work on a story of this magnitude because we knew there was a battle during a war, but what we didn't know was what was going on in the home front battle. And that's such a critical part of the story. I mean, I, you know, I'll never forget when uh, my stepfather was dying of lung cancer. You know, my mother was taking care of him around the clock. And, you know, a lot of people obviously would approach her, her friends, neighbors, and so on, and ask how he was. And uh, obviously, that's a very, you know, necessary question for people who care about you. You know, how is he? How is he doing? How is the treatment going? Until one day, one woman, a good friend of hers, stopped and said, how are you? And that was a question that she rarely got. And it's all totally understandable. But in this context, you're exactly right. I mean, so much attention, and understandably and obviously, has been on the actual POWs who were captured um, and held for so many years. We think John McCain, of course, one of the most famous cases. Um, but not a lot of people have stopped to think what it was like for their spouses and their children and their, their extended families. And so what you've done here in this book is turn that question, how are you? <laughs> how did you get through this? And you're giving them the attention they so well deserve. Yes, and you have, to rem you have to remember, Monica, that at the beginning of this war, when there were just, you know, dozens of men being captured and missing, the government told these women, keep quiet. We are instructing you not to tell anyone outside your immediate family that your husband is either captive or missing. And not even a neighbor. Yeah. Not even a neighbor. And certainly mm -hmm. not to the press. And one of the MIA wives said to me, she said, how do you live like that? So they really suffered in silence for a few years until they really couldn't take it anymore. I mean, it's just an outrageous, uh, an outrageous policy. We're going to get into the impact that these brave women had in terms of changing policy. But yeah, I mean, that's that's really asking the impossible of someone that their spouse and in many cases, the father of their children has been captured in a combat zone or is missing in a combat zone. You don't know whether they're alive or dead day to day. And right. your own government is telling you, you can't tell anybody outside your immediate family. I mean, how you carry that burden, right? <laughs> yep. And, you know, the context of the early to mid 1960s is important here because women had a very different role. There were very few jobs available to them. Many were secretaries, some were stewardesses, a few taught, most, um, you know, there were nurses as well, but they couldn't get credit without a man's signature, whether that was their husband or their father. 
so when their husband went missing, the issue of housing became important. As their sons became older, they needed cars and they couldn't get a mortgage without a man's signature. You know, we like to point out um, that women didn't travel unaccompanied and the military had guidelines for women that were even more restrictive at the time. Some of these women went out to dinner wearing gloves or lunch. You know, it was very, very different. Women were just starting to get driver's licenses. So it was a very different time and speaking out, especially against a policy that had worked so well during Cold War era incidents was very different. So you might remember that in 1960, Gary Powers U-2 spy plane was shot down and the government considered it a triumph that they had through back channel and deeply quiet negotiations, been able to get them released within two years. So in that context, these women were operating, being mostly on the sidelines, waiting patiently, which is something as military wives they had mastered. And it was a very different time culturally. It was. And that's a really important part of this story because, you know, a lot of younger people have no touchstone to that era beyond what they see on Mad Men or, you know, some show or movie that's set in that context. But yeah, I mean, women. The the feminist revolution, Gloria Steinem, et cetera, hadn't happened yet for the most part. So, you know, women were still on the back heel in many, many areas, and certainly with regard to the power that they had in this culture. Taylor and Judy, I'm going to ask you to please hang tight. A lot more straight ahead. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy And you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. All right, we're back with this fascinating conversation with Taylor and Judy. Their new book is called Unwavering. 
before we get into, and we're going to get into the context, that's sort of the, the social context, but we'll also get into the context of the war. But before we do that, I want to ask both of you, you have long family military backgrounds, each of you. How did that inform your desire to take this on and, and then your actual storytelling? Well, I guess I'll start. I grew up uh, on the island community of Coronado, California. I spent part of my childhood there. I moved around a lot as a Navy junior, but I grew up with some of the POW and MIA families. Uh, my parents were obviously friends with them. They're our neighbors. I was six years old when the POWs came home in 1973. So I do remember the homemade homecoming banners and the yellow ribbons. That left a uh, an indelible mark on me. And fast forward to the year 2000, I was a volunteer for the McCain for President campaign. And I met a number of the, the POWs who were campaigning on John McCain's behalf. They were very powerful surrogates for him. And I was struck by what a unique group of men these were, how successful they were professionally and personally despite being the longest held group of POWs. So those experiences are the, 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 the seminal moments that really influenced me more so than my, my military service or my father's or grandfather's military service. So, um, you know, as a, both a military and a civilian journalist, because I was in the reserves until I was activated in 2003 for the next nine years, um, I think that having a military perspective and, and really having a front row seat to history informed why these stories counted. And it helped tease out the dramatic moments because it's hard to tell a long story about the Vietnam War without losing your audience. So we had to come up with a different vehicle for doing that, that was compelling enough to have the war playing like a constant video in the background, but also the women, keeping the women front and center and also the cultural touchstones that you mentioned and the socioeconomic changes that were going on and attitudes of Americans toward the war and toward each other were changing. And that was the real challenge. But the military background helped us interview better, look for certain documents, tease out stories from people who had lived it vicariously and as partners, and um, also make sure that we included what was going on in America and what the context was. Yes, and I think it's critical that both of you have this military background and your family background in, in the military. You know how the Pentagon works, you know how the military operates, and also the fact that you're women. I think is a, a critical element to the story to tell these women's stories. Absolutely. Okay, Taylor and Judy, let's start at the beginning. So the Vietnam War is raging. We have hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the field at its height. With no clear end in sight, the war is grinding on and thousands are being killed in action. Many more are taken prisoner, as you say, or missing in action. And as a result of all of this chaos and the human cost, the war becomes deeply unpopular, as does those serving in it, even though they were absolute heroes. Take us back to the days of the war, where the numbers of POWs and MIAs begin to climb. And yet, 
you know, they're not in the fields, you know, they're not getting the feel the the help that they need. And as you began to say, the families aren't getting the help that they needed. So can you try to set the stage for the stories so that people understand the context of the war? Yeah, when on military bases, when somebody went missing, the um, commanding officer would get into a black sedan that was kind of the harbinger of bad news. And it struck fear in the hearts of everybody who lived on that base. In fact, some of the wives told us about uh, if they lived in a two-story house, climbing upstairs in the morning to see if the CO got into that car, picked up the social worker, and then as it encircled the housing, base housing, where it stopped. So you can only imagine the angst that was involved. And there was no real structure for caring for the family. There was just the delivery of news by a chaplain and a senior officer with their military covers or hats in their hand. And then you were on your own and you were to keep quiet. And some of them were, most of them were assigned casualty officers, but there was scant news being shared. Nobody know, knew where many of the men were. If they were captured, you know, was there a mailing address? The Geneva Conventions, which had been signed by the North Vietnamese were not being upheld. That means there was an assumption the men were being treated well, that they were being fed, that they were being clothed, that they were getting appropriate medical care, that they were exchanging letters with their families, and that there were, was an allowance of third-party inspections of those prison camps. But that's not what really was happening. And Monica, there was really no, no policy for support for these families. No. As, Carol, as Carol McCain told me, John McCain's first wife, the chaplain, you know, took her hands in his and said, Mrs. McCain, I'm here for you. I'm in my office Monday through Friday, eight to four. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was it. And the women were kept isolated. They were not told of other families in the same predicament. Obviously, those who lived on base housing knew whose husband was missing or, or captive. But for those living out in a civilian community, they were truly, truly isolated yes. and suffering in silence. Which is really the worst thing you can do to right. a military spouse, you know, whose spouse is missing or, or captured, keeping them isolated is literally the worst thing that you can do. You know, I want to share with you both that I was actually born on an army base toward the end of the war. I was born at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, um, which is the center of army intelligence. And my father was army intelligence Uh, During the war, he was kept stateside because he was training officers who were then going overseas. So he didn't actually go to Vietnam, but he was there at the tail end of the war. And exactly what you're saying is what my mother said to me, you know, when I was growing up and I had questions about the Vietnam War and what it was like living on that base. And she said, you know, when you saw that car driving through the base, you knew you know, you knew and your heart just sunk and it just broke for the, the individual getting getting the news that, you know, that car brought. So, um, you know, you really did lay it out in a in a very powerful kind of way. So let's talk about, um, you know, this particular group of, of men who were captured or went missing and the small group of their military wives who became their champion. First of all, how did these women 
find each other? Well, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of tools available to them. There was no, right. no, no email, no email, right. no texting, no smartphones, right. no Google, no internet, right. no nothing. Right. 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 They had telephone books. They had letters. They had telephones. And if they had an urgent message, they could use telegrams. But through word of mouth, several of them in the San Diego area was sort of the epicenter started getting together in the fall of 1966, organized by one woman in particular who's quite well-known, Sybil Stockdale, who was the wife of then Commander Jim Stockdale. She was a seasoned Navy wife. She'd been married to her husband for two decades and the mother of four children. And because she was a commanding, well, she was the wife of the, of the CAG, the Carrier Air Group Commander, she was you know, the de facto senior wife, because at those, in those days, the wives wore the ranks of their husbands. <laughs> right. And so she took the initiative and started gathering women together socially. And she said they were initially terrified to come meet with her because the keep quiet policy had been so deeply ingrained with them. And the cathartic effect of getting together was palpable and they decided to do it on a regular basis. It's just incredible that without the resources that we have today of internet connectivity, that these women were able to find each other and what a tremendous relief and release both for these women just to find people in a similar situation that they could really pour their hearts out to. Right, meanwhile, the Johnson administration was doing very, very little. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into that, into the politics of this in a second. Um, had they individually been trying to get answers and yes. trying to get individual help for their cases? You know, most of them tried to develop a relationship with their casualty officer. Some of them shared information. You know, today you have Facebook groups that tell you how to wear your uniform or how to find childcare, and that's fantastic. But they didn't have that. So they just had to informally share some of what they were going through. But most of it was, was shouldered in silence. It really was much later, you know, four or five years later, that they organized. And there were several incidents that led to that. Okay, please stand by. Much more with Taylor and Judy with Unwavering straight ahead. But first, guys, listen up. I know it's really hard to eat healthy when you're so busy. Whether you're traveling, taking care of your kids, just the daily hustle, it can be so hard to get the daily recommended vegetables and fruits in your diet. I know this happens to me every single day, which is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is whole organic fruits and vegetables, not a watered-down supplement, and it's backed by a better health promise. Each ingredient in Field of Greens was scientifically chosen to support vital organs like heart, lungs, and kidney health, Others support my immune system, blood pressure, metabolism, and healthy weight loss. Let me get you started right now with 15% off. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. Like me, you'll probably look and feel healthier fast and have way more energy. But the best proof will be at your next checkup when your doctor says, hey, whatever you're doing, it's working. Keep it up. 
To get 15% off, visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Taylor Kaland and uh, Judy Gray. Their new book is called Unwavering. I am fascinated how they came to each other and then also realized that they had more power in numbers. How did they begin then to mobilize? And as you said, this was unheard of for military spouses, right, at the time. So how did they begin to mobilize and where did they find that courage? The same woman I mentioned, Sybil Stockdale, opened the floodgates in October of 1968. But at that time, her husband had been captive for more than three years. And I believe that she had watched the case and the example of Mrs. Rose Buecher, the CO's wife, the wife of the CO of the USS Pueblo, which you may remember was captured off the waters of North Korea in January of 1968. And that incident became an international crisis immediately. And very, as opposed to the negotiations that were going on for the release of the Vietnam POWs, back-channel, private negotiations. The negotiations to release the Pueblo captives was very, very public, and it was all over the news. And Rose Buecher was thrust into the international spotlight and became a tireless advocate for her husband. And over the 11 months that her husband was captive, she spoke to the Secretary of State, she spoke to the American Legion, she went on national TV talk shows, holding up banners, remember the Pueblo. And she got her man home in, in nine months. They signed, they signed the negotiations and she got her man home by Christmas yeah. in 1968. I believe that that really influenced Sybil Stockdale. And in October of 68, after hearing all of this for the, for the previous 10 months, she boldly and bravely gave an interview, an exclusive interview to the San Diego unit. And in it, she chastised the government and she chastised the North Vietnamese. And that article was syndicated and it ran in newspapers all over the country. And it gave many, many other POW and MIA wives the courage to speak up. And she started receiving calls from all over the country saying, what can I do? And simultaneously, the war was heating up. It was escalating. There were more and more airmen disappearing over the skies. Most of these POWs were aviators because they were at high risk for being shot down. And women were sitting there going, I have to do something. I have to do something. And in, by 1969, they were walking the halls of Congress. They were meeting with any congressional aide or congressman or woman who would meet with them. They were writing letters, they were organizing, they were learning how to speak out in public. And by September of 1969, they actually had taken diplomatic matters into their own hands and went off to the Paris peace talks to confront the North Vietnamese person to person. It's just incredible. When you think about it, because, and and this is what makes this book so powerful, is that none of these women were savvy politically. They weren't political actors. They weren't immersed in politics. They were just very devoted wives who loved their spouses. 
And soon they find themselves going up against huge, faceless, powerful bureaucracies, including the Pentagon and the State Department and, and Congress. And then they find themselves like in the middle of the Paris peace talks, <laughs> which is, it's just incredible. Can you walk us through how, how they went from sort of that first timid phone call um, and finding each other to being on the world stage. And, and certainly, you know, these American bureaucracies um, and institutions, but then finding themselves, right, like smack dab in the middle of the peace negotiations for the Vietnam War. Well, one important thing happened in January of 1969, and that is President Nixon yeah. became, be, took office. Yes, my old yeah. boss, as you your, ladies know. Your yes. old boss, and things changed when Nixon took office. First thing that happened was Sybil Stockdale organized what she called a telegram in. And on the eve of his inauguration, she had these ladies, by then they had a phone tree, you know, the old fashioned phone tree, you call two people, I'll call two people, they'll call two people. She instructed every one of the ladies that she had gotten to know after her interview uh, went national all over the country in October of 68. She said, we're going to deluge the White House and the State Department with telegrams, and we're going to remind President Nixon, our new president, that we have men who've been captured and missing for three or four years. And she did that. And his new Secretary of Defense, Mel Laird, who, in my opinion, is one of the underrecognized heroes of the Vietnam War and of this story, he took office as the new Secretary of Defense. And when he was a congressman from Wisconsin in the years prior to this assignment, he had met with several of the POW and MIA wives and he began to call them to his colleagues, the unmentionables of this war. And he started advocating for a different policy. He yes. wanted to go public. And guess who did not agree with him? The State Department. Of course. Kissinger. Yes. They did not agree with him. They were afraid that going public would disrupt the apple cart in Paris and might harm the men in captivity. But Laird was convinced that this was the right policy, and he announced it in May of 69. And all of a sudden, the women who'd been walking the halls of Congress and giving interviews and speaking to Kiwanis and Rotary Clubs on a local level, all of a sudden they had the power and, and the prestige of, of the Nixon administration behind them. And a lot of um, visibility around the country. You know, there were interviews being given, there were talks being given, these women were tireless and relentless. All of a sudden there were congressional hearings. Yep. All of a sudden they got a White House meeting with Nixon in December of 69. They, they all of a sudden had a lot more support behind them. It's, it's incredible. And as you both know, I did work with President Nixon during his final years, so early to mid-1990s. And in fact, in, in one of my two books about my experiences with him called Nixon in Winter, I wrote a chapter on his final thoughts about the Vietnam War, which was fascinating because he was completely dedicated to bringing back all of our POWs and MIAs. He was committed to no man left behind. Um, just as a, as a policy principle, 
um, as a geostrategic matter, but also more importantly, as a moral matter. And I would also point out, because I don't think it's a small, small matter here with regard to Nixon, that he was surrounded by women. He had a very strong wife in Mrs. Nixon, and he had two daughters who were both highly intelligent, strong-willed, very opinionated, uh, Julie Nixon Eisenhower and Trisha Nixon Cox. And I would say that maybe one of the big reasons why he was so open to this, in addition to the policy and moral aspects of it, is because he loved women. And I think he had a very soft spot for these military wives. He absolutely understood and empathized with these women. I, I think it really, it really pained him. But I will also say that he recognized that by late 1969 and early 1970, these women had started to garner the sympathy of everyone. Yeah. Everyone. And he realized that the women could be his symbol for the silent majority, that mm -hmm. he could rally both pro-war and anti-war factions in our country around the plight of these men. And the women had started that rallying of the nation. Here's this divisive war that's bitterly dividing the country. And they come up with the M MIA, the POW MIA bracelets. So actually it was a student group that was called Voices in Vital America and they fashioned these aluminum and copper bracelets engraved with the name of a missing or captive man, their date of loss, their rank, and their, you know, the military service they were in. And an entire country is wearing these, and they were successful in finding a humanitarian issue that was deeply personal, that could rally a nation in the midst of this tangled, and hard to understand war. And it was wildly successful. They sold more than 5 million of these. I remember being 12 years old in camp and my camp counselor saying, this is essential for each one of you to buy. You should wear this and never take it off until this man comes home. It was just such an incredible um, grassroots movement that was so far ahead of its time, right? Yeah. I mean, these women did so many things that were so far ahead of their time. We've got to hit this quick break, but we'll be back with much more. Okay, we're back now with our final moments with this very important and fascinating conversation. Before we get off of President Nixon and, and the extraordinary work that he did to, to return all of these men yes. home, we all see the famous photos of the returning POW, POWs, mm. you know, including that one on the tarmac with this little girl running toward him, yeah. and the one of John McCain at the White House with President Nixon. There are so many stories like this, you know, less famous stories. But it was 50 years ago last week. Yes. that President Nixon held the dinner in the honor of these POWs. That in and of itself was a major, major thing. It absolutely was. And you have to remember that even though the average Vietnam veteran was being derided and, and spit on when he came home, they, he was instructed to take off his uniform when he arrived at the San Francisco airport. By contrast, the homecoming of our POWs was a national celebration. Millions and millions of people got up in the middle of the night 
to watch the homecoming, the landing of the POWs at Clark Air Base in the Philippines live on network television. They got lifetime passes to Major League Baseball. They got national media tours and free vacations. And yes, they got a White House dinner. The fate of these captive men by the time they were released in January of 73 had become a central negotiating point at the Paris peace talks that had never before happened in any other war. And that is all because of the work that these women set in motion. And in those wars, you know, Taylor brings up a great point, and that is, you know, there were 591 men that came home and there were, during World War II, we left behind more than 72,000. In the Korean War, we left behind more than 7,000 men. And now we search for missing men and women from every war. And it's, of course, no accident that we ended the war in Afghanistan without a single man left behind. And it can all be traced to the work of these women. I mean, their impact is just so extraordinary. I've got a, another question or two for you on that issue, but before we get into that, you guys both mentioned the encrypted letters. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, so Sybil Stockdale was approached by an intelligence officer and one of her main contacts in the Pentagon, Commander Bob Burroughs, who said, we have a mission for you if you're willing to accept it. And that is to try and deliver encoded letters to your husband. So she essentially became a covert operative during the Vietnam War. She accepted the mission with, with some reservations because she said, what if, he's, what if he's caught encoding these letters or decoding these letters? And Commander Burroughs said, well, he, he'd be on his own. So she was worried. And what she was able to do was send him a letter that had a piece of um, invisible carbon paper uh, pasted between two pieces of paper. And she had given him instructions as to how to extract that piece of invisible carbon paper. And I will let the readers discover how he actually decoded <laughs> that because it's an interesting story. But he was able to take that piece of invisible carbon paper, put it on top of a letter and write secret messages that then he would send to her in a letter. And he was able to communicate with her uh, the names of missing men that the government didn't know were uh, in captivity, to communicate the fact that there was widespread torture and isolation going on. And it was a major, major intelligence coup that the North Vietnamese never discovered. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is, <laughs> it's absolutely breathtaking when you think about it. We've heard the stories, you know, from John McCain and others that when they were held in their dark cells, um, isolated, they used to communicate to each other by Morse code, by banging on pots or the floor or pipes or whatever it might be. And we have heard about, you know, the blinking into the camera and that sort of thing. But this is the first that I've heard about how they were able to communicate with the outside um, with their actual spouses. That's amazing. Yes. yes. And Sybil, Sybil Stockdale wasn't the only one who did that. There were several other wives who were successful in getting encoded letters to their, to their husbands. Um, the government did attempt to also insert other uh, 
devices into packages. Um, North Vietnamese discovered some of those, you know, like a transistor radio embedded into a piece of candy. Um, (laughs) uh, Those those were discovered and confiscated by the North Vietnamese. But there were lots of clever attempts by the U.S. government to to uh, deliver these types of devices to. To the to the captives. Imagine the stress for the uh, the women, you know, wanting to do something, anything, wanting to serve their government because it took their mind off the, you know, incomprehensible length of time they had to wait for a morsel of news. But it's also scary. What could happen if the if they were discovered? Right. I mean, it took an enormous courage for all of these women to engage in all of this activity. Um, and it's a huge testament to them. Um, in our remaining moments here, ladies, um, you know, you mentioned as a result of what they did, they achieved real policy change. And you talk about the enforcement of no man left behind as an actual policy, not just the morally right thing to do, but something that is required. Can you talk to us about any other changes that were undertaken as a result of what they did? Sure. Um you know, we talked about the families not having a structured policy to care for them or to take into account some of the um, challenges they encountered renting a place to live or even finding a place to live or relocating. And one of the women, and she is the wife of Captain Stratton, whose idea it was to write this book, is Alice Stratton. Alice Stratton went on in 1985 to become the first deputy assistant secretary of the Navy for family matters. So she was a female first and she was a first in a position like that. Uh, There were other services that also dealt with family matters but we think she was the first one. And Alice had made it her life's work to continue thinking about others. She was a social worker and she was deeply concerned about the impact of deployments and certainly having captive fathers and husbands on the military family. And she had done a body of research uh, on her own and with the Navy and was deeply empathetic with other families. And so when she was appointed to this position, she started tackling an array of issues that serves all families and women in the military today. And that is family service centers with resources for children and wives, people who can uh, train you to work on the, you know, the financial side of deployments, the emotional side. These were things we didn't tackle until these wives came along. So that's a very important legacy as well. It also changed how we fight our wars. Taylor points out often that we just don't have the stomach for POWs or captives, that we can tolerate casualties and injuries during war, but leaving men behind is something we cannot tolerate. And so we use more drones, we fly at higher altitudes, we do everything we can to avoid having POWs. Look at the, the, the proof points that we have in recent history. In 1994, Scott O'Grady was shot down over Bosnia, We went to Mm -hmm. tremendous lengths to rescue him. 2003, Jessica Lynch was captured in Iraq. We sent in Navy SEALs to rescue her. In 2009, Bo Bergdahl walked off his post. 
in Afghanistan and we sent out, we had an all points bulletin out and many, many special forces were expended to try and rescue him. And we traded five terrorists for him. <laughs> and then Brittany Griner last year, we traded an arms dealer for her. You know, we will not tolerate it anymore. It probably makes us vulnerable as a country, but it is a quintessential American trait that we will not leave any man behind. And that principle of no man left behind has been central to American combat doctrine since these women took their case to Congress, to the White House, to, to Paris, to, to the world. And it's because of their efforts, which you detail in this extraordinary book, um, that really made this difference. And this is the origins of that policy. This is just a beautiful, powerful story of these brave women, these brave Americans. They're all heroines. And I want to thank you both for sharing this story with the rest of us. Thank you so much, you. Monica. Oh, Thank well, it's so my, much. of course, it's my great pleasure, especially on this very special day. This book reads like a novel, guys, so please go get it. You just heard from them how extraordinary the story is, and it's one of the great untold stories, not just of the war in Vietnam, but of our recent American history. And these women, their story needs a very wide audience. The book is called Unwavering, the Wives Who Fought to Ensure No Man is Left Behind by Taylor Kaland and Judy Gray. It's a very important and riveting summer read, so go get it. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Such an amazing show for this Memorial Day, isn't it? I'm so glad that you were here for this conversation. Thank you guys so much. And also for checking out our great sponsors. We all really, really appreciate y'all. All right. Have a great rest of your holiday. Blessings and thoughts and prayers to the families and our fallen heroes uh, since the beginning of the Republic, those who paid the ultimate price to defend our liberties and the Constitution. God bless them and God bless America. I will see you right back here on Wednesday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.